You'll turn with me to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, title of this morning's sermon is A Tree and Its Fruit. Our key words for worshipers and training are bad, good, and heart. Luke 6, this morning we will be looking at verses 43 through 45. Now it is said that the University of California at Berkeley has the best horticulture program in the world. Now, horticulture is the discipline focused on the production of uh, the production and health and cultivation of plants that are grown for human consumption. In other words, a, a horticulturist is mainly concerned with plants and trees that produce fruits and vegetables and these sorts of things. So if you've ever grown anything in your own garden, you've engaged in horticulture at a small level. But there are people out there who specialize in this. And they know more about fruits and nuts than you could ever think possible which may be why the leading program is in Berkeley, California. (laughs) They can tell you more than you ever wanted to know about soil, about pH levels, about root formation, about chlorophyll and branch and leaf structures. You name it, if it grows and it can be eaten, a good horticulturist will be able to fill you up with all the details plus more. But perhaps something you've never considered is that Jesus himself calls his people to be spiritual horticulturists. We're to be a people who know something about spiritual growth, what good spiritual roots are, how a good spiritual structure is formed, and ultimately having a very keen eye to determine whether or not the fruit that is being produced is good and healthy, or if it is bad and rotten. It certainly doesn't take a PhD from Berkeley to know when fruit is bad. My three-year-old Eva knows that something's wrong with a black, mushy banana. But if you've ever planted a fruit tree, you know there's a lot more that goes into it than simply picking fruit off the tree to put in your fruit basket. There's a lot of effort and time that goes into producing something that is healthy and good and tasty. And this only magnifies the disappointment that comes after several years of hard work and waiting, only to find that a tree that you've loved and cared for produces nothing but bad, rotten fruit. Eventually, you have to take it down, realizing in the end that the roots never went into the soil. And so it is, Jesus teaches us in the passage we will look at this morning, with the lives of men and women. Different kind of spiritual lives produce different kinds of spiritual fruits. Sometimes the fruit is good and healthy while other times it's bad, it's rotten. But before we jump into the three verses from 
the text this morning, I want to remind us of the context of what Jesus is saying. If you remember, this is all part of Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. We saw in verse 20 that Jesus is addressing his disciples specifically. And he's been identifying the significant differences between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. And in the last two sections that we've looked at, Jesus taught us how to love our enemies and what it means, what he means by the now famous words, judge not and you will not be judged. Now, through all of this, Jesus has built a foundation that gives us the ability to make proper, discerning, wise, and merciful judgments that are truly important in living a Christian life as God intends for us. I want to highlight a few defining verses that build the foundation this morning. Remember verse 31, where Jesus said, And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. In verse 36, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. And last time we looked at verse 42. How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out that speck that is in your eye. When you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye, you first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. So Jesus has taught us to deal with others in the way that we hope to be dealt with ourselves, to show an abundance of mercy with wide open arms, offering forgiveness and reconciliation to those who have sinned against us. And before ever going to someone else in their own sin, I am to be sure that I identify the sin in my own heart. And that I'm not mercilessly judging and condemning others for doing the very same things that are evident in my own life. It is this, it is this context upon which Jesus calls us to do what many have wrongly interpreted verse 37 to say we're not supposed to do at all. Namely, to make judgments. The big question that Jesus answered for us in the previous text was how is it that we are able to make appropriate moral judgments without being condemning and judgmental? The answer we've already read in verse 20, uh, 42 gives us the proper setup for making judgments. Check your own heart first and then you can undertake the work of a spiritual horticulturist. So let's read together verses 35 or 43, excuse me, through 45. For no good tree bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Look again at verse 43. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear 
good fruit. So being able to make discerning, subtle, moral judgments is an essential part of Christian discipleship and leadership. Remember, Jesus' primary audience is his disciples. They must be skilled at exercising moral discernment and making necessary biblical judgments. If you walk among an orchard of peach trees, the one containing the nicest, most tasty, perfect peach won't have dry, brown, sagging leaves with a puny trunk. In other words, good Georgia peaches. Or if you're from across the border, South Carolina peaches, but we know better than that. They're so fresh and they're, they're juicy and you, you smell them and they smell so good. And when you bite into it, the juice just runs down your mouth and onto your shirt. That doesn't come from a bad peach tree. You want a peach right now, I know. A healthy peach tree with a firm trunk and beautiful leaves with deep roots in perfectly prepared soil isn't going to produce an abundance of brown, diseased peaches. And it doesn't take a degree from Berkeley to give an accurate analysis of the condition of the tree based upon the production of the fruit. It's obvious. Jesus says in verse 44, For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes uh, picked from a bramble bush. So Jesus tells us we're not going to go to an apple tree to find a peach. Figs grow on fig trees and grapes grow on grapevines. Why would we ever look for them on a thorn or bramble bush? So what's the point here? Well, Jesus is giving us two principles of judgment when it comes to dealing with others. Now, we must keep in mind the foundation that has been laid out previously. The first principle Jesus gives us is that when a moral judgment is to be rightly made, we have to ask, what can be my honest expectation In other words, am I looking on the right tree for the right kind of fruit? In 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 12, the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? In other words, worldly people will live worldly lives. That's what we should expect. 
We can't assume or expect that people with hearts that have not been transformed by the gospel are going to live lives consistent with what God expects of his people. Sinners will do what sinners do. When we rightly understand the nature of mankind in the depths of depravity, Paul almost jokingly says, if you want to find a non-believer to associate with who is not completely overtaken by sin, you will have to go outside of the world because they don't exist around here. They are dead in their transgressions and sins, as he says in Ephesians 2 and verse 1. They don't exist. Likewise, when dealing with a non-believer, there should be no expectation that any kind of healthy spiritual life exists, and therefore no expectation that any kind of good fruit will be produced. And really, this is a call to merciful pity and compassion. If we can recognize the condition of a carnal man's heart because we ourselves once shared in that same condition, our moral judgment of them will not come from a down-looking judgmental condemnation. It will be merciful. It will be loving and concerned for their eternal soul. It will move us to pray for them and to seek opportunities to point them to the truth of the gospel. But this principle is why the Bible so clearly warns us about our dealings with non-believers. It's the reason why we are called as as believers to not be unequally yoked in our relationships. Why? Well, what happens to a healthy branch that is grafted onto a dead tree? I assure you, the fruit will not be a high yield at the end of the season. So the first thing to ask is, what can be my honest expectation? If someone tells me they're not a Christian, I shouldn't expect them to have any concern for holiness or obedience to God's word. Secondly, Jesus points out that a discerning moral judgment includes our asking, what does the forthcoming fruit look like? Now, this is a very important issue that is central to Jesus' teaching. If you claim to be a Christian, but the fruit of your life is consistently rotten, are you a Christian simply because you say you are? Let me illustrate it differently. I am a bird. A peacock, an Indian peafowl from South Asia, to be exact. I know I don't have feathers. I know I don't have a beak or eyes on the side of my head. I have hands. I have opposable thumbs, as well as every other defining characteristic of a man and not a bird. But I say I'm a bird, so I'm a bird. Does it work like that? I say it's true, so it's true. You see, many well-meaning evangelicals have sought to make Christianity about a decision. Just say you want to be a Christian, and you are one. Pray these words, sign this card, follow these steps, and presto, you're a Christian. End of story, case closed, welcome to the family. 
But Jesus didn't think it was enough to just superficially identify yourself with him. There is more than being his follower in word only. There is more than just a profession of faith. My great fear is that many, many people who sit in churches each and every week and serve as deacons and pastors and Sunday school teachers and VBS workers have a full expectation that Jesus will one day say to them, well done, faithful servant. When in fact, they may very well hear him say, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. Such people discover the truth only after it's too late. Ask yourself, is it possible that I might be one of those people? Could it be that you're not really a Christian after all? Well, how can you be sure? One of the great gifts of God is that the very fact that he has made known to us in the Bible what we can look to that gives us certainty regarding our salvation in Jesus Christ. But it's not dependent upon what we say we are. There's a warning here, and the fact that we have a warning is proof of the mercy and love of Jesus toward us. It's important that we, we heed the warning and adhere to the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 13.5. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Likewise, the Apostle Peter writes, Be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what measure is given to us in the scriptures by which we might examine our spiritual fruit to see what kind of tree we really are? The Apostle Paul provides a listing on contrasting the fruits in Galatians 5, 19 through 24. Those fruits of the flesh and those fruits of the Spirit. And in the context of what Jesus is saying, we can say fruits produced by those who are in the kingdom of the world versus fruits possessed and produced by those who are planted in the kingdom of God. Now in Galatians chapter 5, first Paul outlines the rotten fruits of a bad tree. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So you see, it's not an all-encompassing list. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What happens to a bad tree that produces bad fruits? It is chopped down and it is destroyed. He goes on to outline the good fruit that comes from a good and healthy tree. But the fruit of the Spirit 
is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. And so the contrast is very clear. The results of this contrast can be very devastating. J.C. Ryle writes, Let it be a settled principle in our religion that when a man brings forth no fruits of the Spirit... He has not the Holy Ghost within him. Let us resist as a deadly error the common idea that all baptized people are born again and that all members of the church, as a matter of course, have the Holy Ghost. One simple question must be our rule. What fruit does a man bring forth? Does he repent? Does he believe with the heart of Jesus? Does he live a holy life? Does he overcome the world? Habits like these are what scripture calls fruit. And when these fruits are wanting, it is a profane thing to talk of a man having the spirit of God within him. So you see, while we should give the benefit of the doubt to those who profess faith in Jesus Christ... When the fruit of their tree is consistently rotten, the Lord has called us to make a moral judgment. This is in large part what is happening through the process of proper biblical church discipline. We're certainly not called to walk around questioning everyone's profession of faith and skeptically assuming they're not a Christian until they prove otherwise, but rather we love them. We give them the benefit of the doubt We seek to dwell with them in unity. We confront them in their sin when it's necessary. And then we observe and see what kind of fruit is produced. Does it mirror the fruit of the Spirit? Or does it mirror that of the flesh? The resulting fruit is helpful to know how we engage that person. As a brother or sister or as one who needs to be called to repentance and faith in the gospel. And you see, that's the important end. We're not called to make moral judgment for the sake of making a moral judgment. We're called to do so that we know how to rightly highlight the gospel for that person, to either encourage them in their continued walking in fruitfulness and godliness in the Holy Spirit, or to point out the flesh and to call them to repentance. The primary and ultimate goal is to see a person enjoying true union with Christ through the gospel that transforms lives and produces healthy, body-nourishing fruit. Jesus goes on to present this very same axiom in human terms. In verse 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. And so here Jesus really gets to the main issue, the heart. The inner disposition of a man determines the kind of fruit that he will produce in his life. 
One can attempt to build an external veneer of goodness and may even be able to fool a lot of people for a very long time, but the truth will become known eventually. And in just a moment, Jesus will give us one of the ways we will know how. But I want to highlight the fact that Jesus does not mean here that no follower of his will never sin. Jesus is simply saying that no good tree will go on bearing bad fruit consistently. A tree is not cut down because it produces bad fruit every now and then. A tree is cut down because its production is worthless and rotten. So where is the fruit of the tree most readily displayed? Second part of verse 45, he says, For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. So once again, we see Jesus' most obvious concern, the heart. We said elsewhere that it is not enough to merely clean things up on the outside. In Matthew 23, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and plate that the outside may also be clean. You see, behavior is not the main issue. Our behavior, our works are a result. Our behavior is the consequence of what already exists in our hearts, you see. Our obedience to what God has commanded is not simply a matter of outward conformity. It's a matter of producing true lasting and good spiritual fruit that springs from the rich, fertile, and well-tended soil of a regenerated heart. Jesus is saying very directly that the heart of a man is what he is. In your secret thoughts and feelings, known only by you and by God, this is who you really are. And I am deeply convicted that such a truth should shut my mouth more often than it actually does. But even more convicting is knowing that God hears far more than what I speak and sees far more than what I do. Man looks to the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You know, we often feel safe from exposing our true intentions by simply remaining silent. As children of God, we must be even more concerned about the fact that God looks at our hearts. What does He see in your heart? What thoughts remain unsaid? They still rest in your heart for God to observe. It should concern us far more what God sees and knows of our hearts than what other men and women hear from our mouths. All issues of life are processed by and disseminated from the heart. In Matthew 15, Jesus said, What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defiles a person. What we are, the things that we 
process and think about and mull over these things that anger our hearts and make us bitter and resentful and hateful. These are what Jesus cares about the most. So you see, Mama's old statement, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. It's not good enough. It falls far short of what Jesus calls us to. Jesus demands much more than nice words. He desires a purified heart. Jesus did not come into the world because we simply have a few bad habits that we need to get rid of so that we can behave properly. Jesus came into the world because our hearts are dirty and defiled and wicked and need to be purified. In Psalm 19.14, David prayed, Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And so we have to ask, how are the words of my mouth acceptable in the sight of God? When the meditations of my heart are playing over and over, what are they? Is David's prayer your prayer? Do you ask God to purify your heart and your words and ask that your meditations might be acceptable in his sight? Every time you open your mouth to speak, you're putting a megaphone up to your heart and you're proclaiming to all that can hear what's true about how you think and about what you believe. The irritated, busy words to your spouse. The short, angered words to your children. The arrogant, boastful words to your co-workers. The gossip to other church members. The complaints behind someone's back. These are all very revealing of what's true of our hearts. For a time, we might be able to hide our bitterness. We might be able to hide our lack of compassion. We can disguise hostility under a cloak for a time. We can even be rigorously separated from all sorts of cultural sins. But that's all on the outside. In time, when our reactions and our words reveal a contempt and merciless judgmentalism for others, true ungodliness is revealed. Rotten fruits come forth. When you harbor ill will against someone in your heart, you will eventually express those feelings in one way or another. If you are filled with lustful thoughts, eventually it will come out through suggestive or crude remarks and actions. If you are persistently hateful or angry, those feelings will eventually become words. What do you find yourself talking about most often? Is it sports, politics, your favorite hobby? Or is it spiritual things? Do you have spiritual conversations? Do you think about the things of God? These things are very telling when it comes to what is really in our hearts. 
When you're alone and when it's quiet and you have nothing going on around you and you're left to nothing but your thoughts, what do you most often think about? What are you most likely to ponder? This is most often what our hearts are set on. The things that consume your thoughts in the quiet. What we should all be praying for is that we are earnestly striving after that which pleases the Lord in all of our thoughts and all of our emotions and all of our relationships so that we will have genuine love and kindness and consideration making us unable to help but express it in words and in actions. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 4, 29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. You see, this corrupting talk is not limited to profanity or obscene speech. It includes and is absolutely a prohibition of all the various types of negative speech that come out of our hearts. No corrupting talk, he says. No gossip, no false and judgmental speech, no harsh words. But we cannot simply be proud about the fact that we don't cuss someone out when they make us angry. A sanctified heart will be remorseful and repentant about the fact that there was anger in the first place. And instead of loving the person and giving life with words, there was contempt in the heart. This is not to say that a Christian will not sometimes say the wrong things and respond in the wrong ways. But remorse for sin, repentance toward God, and a pursuit of reconciliation with the person who is wronged will quickly follow if the fruit of the Spirit is present on your tree. So Jesus points us to the most obvious indicator of what's truly in our hearts. Whatever those things are that come from your lips, whatever it is that you are proclaiming for the world to hear through the megaphone of your heart, it is those things that satisfy you. Evil or good, building up or tearing down, giving life or pronouncing death, blessing or cursing, killing or healing. These are the words of the scriptures. Proverbs 18.20 tells us, From the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. Our words get to the root. They get to the center of our deepest satisfaction and the things that give us our greatest joy in life. Again, J.C. Ryle says, Let it be a settled principle in our religion. That when a man's general conversation is ungodly, his heart is graceless and unconverted. Let us not give way to the vulgar notion that no one can know anything of the state of another's heart and that although men are living wickedly, they have got good hearts at the bottom. Such notions are flatly contradicted to our Lord's teaching. Is the general tone of a man's communication carnal and worldly and irreligious and godless or profane? Then let us understand that this is the state of his heart. When a man's tongue is generally wrong, it is absurd, no less than unscriptural, to say that his heart is right. 
You see, true gospel transformation is heart transformation. And heart transformation turns a bad tree into a good tree. It replaces rotten fruit with healthy, life-giving fruit. And gospel transformation begins in the heart and is evidenced by the words of our mouths. When we take a self-examination, like I hope all of us are doing and will do this morning, what is the true condition of your heart? Be honest with yourself. We all need to do fruit inspection in our own lives. It's a very convicting practice to be sure, but it's a necessary one. Hopefully all of you received the picture of the trees on the way in. This is a, a tool, a helpful way for you to examine the fruit in your life. It's based on Psalm 1, and you can see what's in the soil and in the roots and the trunk and what kind of fruit is produced. And as we see in the end, we are either living upon God, we are living upon ourselves. What fruit is being produced by my heart? If you find that the fruit of your life is rotten, The place from which it grows needs to be transformed. In God's infinite goodness, God the Father gave His only Son, Jesus Christ, as a propitiation for the sins of His people. He made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, you cannot get good fruit from a bad tree no matter how hard you try. A transplant is necessary. And some of you might assume that your fruit isn't only rotten in your life, but it stinks and the very smell of it would make someone sick. And there's no way that I could bring this before God. But if we're all honest in here, before Jesus transforms a person's heart, that's how all of us are. And so in honesty, we must examine the tree of faith in our own lives. Listen, you cannot clean yourself up enough to be acceptable to God, and He does not require that of you. God requires you to admit the rottenness of your fruit, to repent of your sins, and to turn to Christ in faith, in His glorious saving work and taking upon Himself the wrath of God as the right and just consequences of our sins and transferring His righteousness to us that we might stand before the Father and claim His righteousness and not our own. The sin of a believer is placed upon Christ and the righteousness of Christ is transferred to us. And when that happens in reality, not simply in saying that it does, but when the Holy Spirit actually does that work, true spiritual fruit will begin to bud and to grow on a tree that was previously dead, lifeless, and full of disease. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
these become the desires of our hearts and the fruits of our lives when the Lord has truly transformed them. Jesus Christ, the judge of all humankind, will render perfect judgment. But best of all, recognizing our hopelessness and our certain condemnation, he underwent judgment for our sins. And so he's not only our judge, but he also became the judged. Now he offers us forgiveness for our sins and enables us to live godly, holy lives according to his good and perfect law. And the fruit of the Spirit is being produced in our lives for his glory. And for that we can praise God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you that by the work of Jesus on our behalf, that we are able to recognize the rottenness of fruit that is produced from dead trees of faith. And because of Jesus and what he has accomplished, that we can know, that we can have assurance by observing that which is in our hearts and in our lives, whether or not we are truly united with Christ. And so, Father, we pray that as we examine our own hearts, in the quiet when we consider what is truly within us, that you would help us to know truly if we will stand before Christ one day who tells us, well done, faithful servant. Lord, may it not be that anyone who is here this morning, who is in our family of faith, may it never be that any would hear those devastating words of Jesus, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. May it be, O God, that the fruit of our lives is evidence of true conversion, of true love and affection for Jesus Christ, and of a true desire to make much of him. Lord, help us to be a people who glorify you. We love you. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for the conviction of sin because of the Holy Spirit that we might know how to repent and seek forgiveness and to be purified that we can walk in holiness for your glory and for our good, for our joy. Thank you, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.